Hello and joining you this week from London on the 25th anniversary of Marco Pantani completing the Giro Tour double, the last man to do so. Also a day when a fresh out of the box Mark Cavendish documentary will supplant one about a rogue candy dispenser smuggler at the top of my Netflix watch list. The Pez Outlaw being the name of the latter, if you're interested. My name is Daniel Freebar. I am the host, the co-host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast, in which we'll figuratively, but also physically, via the medium of technology, journey north to a land of 5 million people, nearly 700 uninhabited islands, and the highest proportion of redheads anywhere in the world. So I read earlier today, possibly making Quinn Simmons, Matteo Jorgensen of the USA, Roger Adrian of Spain, Connor Swift of Great Britain, or Andreas Lechnersund of Norway, the outstanding candidates to take the rainbow jersey on Sunday. I say we go north, I of course mean to Scotland, where a nationally treasured Belgian brunette, who I believe has just completed his first route wreck on this morning, is waiting for us. Alas, it's not Remco Evenepoel, but it is one of the voices of cycling on Belgian network Sporta. It's ace commentator and our friend, Renard Scotter. Good no, afternoon. You're a, you're a Hello, brunette. Daniel. You're a brunette, Lionel. I would say. You would certainly want a brunette. <laughs> well, I, I think I'm more of a greyhound these days. <laughs> um, Renard, well, we'll get your thoughts on the, on the route shortly. But any redheads in the Belgian team? I didn't spot any. Um, you mean on the so. race course this morning? Yeah. No, on the Belgian, the Belgian lineup for Sunday: oh. um, Campanaz, Frison, Lampard, Steuven, Van Hooydonk, Benoit, oh, Philipsen, yeah. Evenepoel, Van Aert. No, it's not a dream you... team. Eh? It's it's a regular dream team, but, um, but no I don't know. A dream team is always, um, yeah, it's not invincible, <laughs> and that will be the problem. Also, we can only lose. Also, not a redhead. I don't think at any point in his life a redhead. He might be able to contradict us on this. Um, my co-host, fellow opening batsman, Lionel Burney. Um, I'm, I've been in the UK for the last week. Lots to talk about cricket, hence the cricket analogy. Um, Lionel, this reminds me. I had a conversation with Mitch Docker at the Tour de France. Um, he's a, a very good opening batsman, um, apparently. But he said he, he always came in at number two. That means you don't face the opening delivery. I was an opening batsman. I always insisted on taking the opening delivery. So it's a bit like you, you and me this week. I'm... I faced the first ball, but you're my co-host this week. Lionel, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. No, I've never been a, a true redhead except in recent years when I've been out in the sunshine, <laughs> like at the Tour de France, oh, yes. with, without I, my... I've been witness to that. Yes. <laughs> without my hat or sun cream, um, do go quite pink quite quickly, especially when it's a hot tour, as it was this year. It was a very hot tour, wasn't it? Certainly the first half, anyway. It was. There was, there was some rain promised at various points, or lots of rain promised at various points, but it didn't really materialise, did it? Well, a few a few spots of rain, didn't they, to quite dramatic effect, because the first time, I think, in the tour that it did rain properly, because there was a, a spattering in the Basque country, wasn't there? But then there was a, the rain on the mountain stage, which caused a big crash and the, the sort of half-hour delay while the peloton um, sort of licked their wounds and, and gathered their thoughts a bit. Uh, but no, a dry, hot tour, wasn't it? And uh, fortunately, covered with, with sun cream from start to finish. Well, speaking of rain and weather, whilst 
well, when unearthing that um, useless piece of trivia about redheads in Scotland, I was, of course, looking for statistics on rainfall in Scotland in anticipation of the weekend, because it probably will rain, and it often rains in Scotland. And I, w- I was thinking that I was going to find out that Scotland is the rainiest place in Europe. The rainiest city in Europe is Bergen in Norway, by most accounts. Um, Renard, how is the weather at the moment on uh, time of recording on Tuesday? Is it Tuesday or Wednesday? Well, this morning when I was doing uh, parts of the of the race course, I uh, yeah I experienced some drizzle. I think typical Scottish drizzle, but it's also typical for Belgium. So I really felt at home. And for the moment, it's clouded. Uh, I see quite windy situations, but um, yeah, it doesn't look like it's uh, not going to rain anymore today. Well, plenty of time to talk about the weather, the course, the runners and riders later in the episode. Um, Should we switch from preview mode into review mode, just briefly, Lionel? And should we have a, what I imagine will be a pretty packed news roundup? Lots going on this week. Well, uh, yes, the Tour de France and the Tour de France fam are now in the rearview mirror, aren't they? And the World Tour for the men resumed uh, as it always does, a week after the Tour de France with the San Sebastian Classic and another win for Remco Evenepoel, who's won three of the last four editions of the San Sebastian Classic, tying the record with Marino Lajareta, uh, the Spanish rider who won the first two uh, editions back in the early 80s. San Sebastian Classic, I, I, I suppose lots of people might assume it's as old as the hills, as old as the Tour de Tour Flanders or Liège-Bastogne-Liège or Paris-Roubaix. Actually, it's the baby of the classics, really, isn't it? A race that's younger than Alejandro Valverde, the first edition held in 1981. And Remco Evenepoel has really made it his own, and it was a very Remco performance, wasn't it? He kind of rode his way out of the peloton, through the groups, gathering up a few passengers with him on the way and outsprinted Peo Bilbao at the finish. Bilbao, of course, who won a tour stage with a very fine sprint of his own. No match for Evenepoel off Sudal Quickstep. At the finish, San Sebastian bodes well for Evenepoel with the World Championship road race on Sunday, and we'll talk a lot about that in the next part. But San Sebastian, a race he's really making his own, but if he makes his Tour de France debut next year, perhaps he won't even be on the start line. So maybe Marino Lajareta's joint record of three wins is safe for the time being. Alexander Vlasov of Bora Hansgrohe was third, and Nielsen Paulis was fourth. He's a recent winner of the San Sebastian Classic as well, isn't he, of course? Jon Izagire, who won a tour stage and a Basque rider, was fifth. So, yes, that's going to give us some clues, perhaps, for the World Championship Road Race on Sunday. Other racing that's happened since the Tour, well, the Tour de Wallonie was won by Philippe Ogana of Ineos Grenadiers. He clinched that, really, by winning the time trial. And this week, we have the Tour of Poland, which still has a few stages left to run. As we speak, they are on stage five, and so far, we've had victories for Tim Malia, Mate Mohoric, Rafael Maika and Olav Koy. And as I say, as we speak, Mate Mohoric is in the leader's jersey. Mohoric not riding the World Championships for Slovenia, as he revealed during the Tour de France. Uh, the Tour de Laine in France is also underway. Well, that concludes today, actually. We don't know the winner of the final stage, of course, at the moment. But so far, Jake Stewart and Jefferson Cepeda have won the stages there. Uh, the other big thing that's happened this week is that the transfer window is flung open. I always imagine the transfer window to be some kind of, you know, you know, something that's open with a big flourish, a bit like some French 
shutters, you know, sort of the, the floor to ceiling shutters. Somebody on August the 1st throws them open. But so far, well, David Lapartion, presumably, yeah. does he open them on? It's a UCI regulation, isn't it? So I suppose he opens the doors on uh, the shutters to the transfer window on August the 1st. But so far, relatively little action, I suspect, because the World Championships are... Um, you know, taking up a lot of people's thoughts and energy at the moment, but a few confirmed moves, one of which has taken place with immediate effect, and that is Arno Damar, who has left Group Armour FDJ to join Arkea, uh, largely as a response to being left out of the Group Armour Tour de France team. Another couple of transfers that have been confirmed, Uno X have been well, they've been quick off the mark in terms of announcing some transfers. They've signed Magnus Court from EF, EF Education and Andreas Lechnesund. Daniel already mentioned him, one of the redheads in the peloton, who finished eighth in the Giro. He's leaving DSM to join Uno X. Relatively little in the way of confirmed moves so far, but any rumours that you've heard, Daniel? Well, there's been there've been quite a few confirmations. There's been a flurry in the last hour or two. Maura Schmidt is leaving some pseudo quick step and going to Jaco Alula three-year contract. Pavel Sivakov, our old mate, Siv, um, he's leaving Ineos Grenadiers, signed for UAE Team Emirates. That's been mooted for quite a long time. I think that's a three-year deal as well. And Tudor have been the big movers, Tudor Pro Cycling. So seven riders for them. Uh, Matteo Trentin, Alberto Dainese, the Italian sprinter, who won another stage at the Giro d'Italia this year. I think that was his second stage winning the Giro. And Michael Stora, who hasn't been a great success, it has to be said, at Groupama FDJ. Uh, Marius uh, Meyerhofer, who won the Cadell Evans Ocean Race, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Alexander Krieger and a couple of others um, joining Tudor Pro Cycling. That's team making moves. They've got long-term ambitions to join the World Tour, of course. But yeah, lots of rumours flying around. There have been a lot of rumours flying around for a few weeks. Most of them pretty well-known, pretty well-documented. Um, a couple I've I've noticed that have, have caught my eye and um, wants to watch over the next few days. Tudor Pro Cycling, I know they've been linked to Sam Bennett. Now, I heard from uh, an extremely good source, the proverbial man down the pub um, at, the tour down, at the Tour de France, that Sam Bennett may well be on his way to AG2R Citroën, which will be called AG2R Decathlon, I think, next year. Um, I don't know if you've heard anything to that effect, Renat. Um, certainly expected to leave Bora. So that's one to watch. The, the big one, I think you talked about a lot during the Tour de France, Lionel, um, Carlos Rodriguez, the Spanish well, revelation of the Tour de France, of course, Ineos Grenadiers. He's long been rumoured to be going to Movistar, but we heard noises to the effect that Ineos was start, uh, was starting to regret their decision to, well, not so much let him go as not offer him a similar kind of deal to the one he, he might get from Movistar. Um, yeah, they, they, they have now made a sort of last-ditch attempt to keep him at Ineos Grenadiers. The, the vibe that I picked up at the end of the Tour de France certainly was they were quite confident. Um, but certainly, well, their agents in a very... And Carlos Rodriguez himself is in a, uh, a very good position, I suppose. Um, a lucrative position because they find themselves at the centre of a bidding war. So that's it's going to be interesting to see how that one shakes out over the next couple of days. And um, Renard, any that you've been particularly keeping your eye on? But the, the Bennett move wouldn't surprise me since um, Meuse, of course, uh, got his breakthrough on the Champs-Élysées. 
which was an important win, of course, on the final day of the Tour de France. For the rest, um, I have to be honest, um, I'm looking forward to this world's to get to know a lot about future transfers. Uh, so uh, I've been commentating the tour from Brussels and then you know how it goes. You're not on the ground and then you miss that. That's the kind of information you miss by not being mm. on the ground. So I, I'm afraid I have to let you down there with uh, <laughs> <laughs> amazing scoops. Just talking about um, Ineos as well, chaps, I'm sure Renard will, well, he'll probably be be able to find out more about this at the World Championships. But, you know, there's a lot of sort of movement around Ineos. Let's talk of an exodus. We know that Danny Martinez, we're pretty confident Danny Martinez is going. Of course, I mentioned Sivakov, Teo Gagan-Hart's rumours to be going to um, Trek Lidl. Um, in terms of sort of replacements or reinforcements for their Grand Tour team, of course, there's a it's a team with a great tradition of Grand Tour racing. Um, Tobias Foss, the World Time Trial Champion, um, who will be sort of abdicating in the next week, one would expect um, his World Time Trial crown. He's been rumoured or linked to Ineos. My latest, more, my understanding over the last few days has been that he will not go there now. Um, Bahrain have been mentioned as a possible destination for Tobias Foss, I know. But um, we we don't know exactly where he's going to end up. I don't think it's going to be Ineos. Well, he shouldn't have any uh, problems finding a new team, I guess, because um, yeah, he uh, by conquering the World Time Trial Championship, uh, that shows his pedigree. But at the other hand, he has had kind of an anonymous season. So um, I've even read reports about him being... And it's it's not um, because of a lack of lack of respect. I say that, but him being the worst time trial world champion ever. I mean, that's a bit uh, exaggerated, maybe. But the, it is a fact that we didn't see a lot of him in in the uh, the current season. And I guess from uh, a reigning world time trial champion, you expect more. You expect simply more. So if he makes a move, then it also. Yeah, the move will probably come. I guess it's because he didn't get enough chances at his current team because who would want to leave the success story Jumbo Visma is these days? I mean, talking about just the, the news and the sort of vibe you pick up on the ground, Renard, I think you know one of the sort of overwhelming themes of the transfer market this year has been already and will continue to be the sort of paucity, the sparseness of particularly Grand Tour riders. And this is a direct result, really, I think, of... Um, the advent and it's a positive development of these very long-term contracts being signed and um, we've got more stability on the sponsorship front and that's led to the most prized commodities on the grand tour market being signed to three four five year deals and it means there's a, there's less churn there's less turnover and there are fewer riders on the market and consequently you know we're hearing what sound like pretty extortionate prices being quoted for riders guys who have never really come close to the to a Grand Tour podium, but uh, might one day have the potential to, you know, um, become Grand Tour riders going for sort of 1 million, 1.5 million, 2 million euros a year. You know, I mentioned AG2R. I think they were very interested in Sivakov. They were looking for a Grand Tour leader or someone to, to augment their Grand Tour team and they weren't able to find that rider. Even a rider like Victor Lafay, I know people have talked about this on social media. Um, you know, he was a guy that a lot of big teams were looking at not as a grand tour leader but you know as a guy who could win hilly races and you know his price well the story i heard suggests that his price had trebled overnight when it was already you know he was already being sort of 
shopped around for around about half a million euros and that kind of trebled overnight as a result of his um, Tour de France stage win. He, incidentally, I think is staying at Cofidis. Well, the transfer market is, is, um, is moving, but it's not moving in a spectacular way, if you ask me. I think we're still waiting for a Mercato 2.0 because in, in cycling, as long as the, the TV rights stay what they are, we won't have a, um, a huge um, growth of, of transfers like we, we are seeing lately in, in football with the, uh, the influx of the, the Saudi money. It's something like that is not at all happening in cycling because there's a status quo as far as budgets are concerning. So um, we have to wait for a game changer there, but it doesn't look like that game changer is around the corner. For what you can see right now on, on the in, in football terms, the Mercato is that there's a lot of uh, searching for the the guys around the big GC names, and and that's like a war going on. Uh, how do Lefebvre is going to build a team around around Evenepoel. I mean, it's been quite quiet lately there, but I'm sure a lot has been moving uh, after the screens, behind the scenes, uh, because uh, he needs to do something. Because in, in if he doesn't, then he might lose Remco in the end, which is not the goal, of course, because the whole team these days is kind of built around the current world champion. So things might move but the 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 big moves like uh like in in other sports i don't see it happening right now in cycling not at all well we'll wait and see whether the rumors of saudi investment into the what is currently jumbo visma comes to anything i mean richard pluger kind of distanced himself a bit from that didn't he before the tour but those rumors persist uh you would think you would think that cycling's Quite quite a low-hanging fruit, really, when you consider the sums of money that would be required to make a really significant uh, footprint in cycling for Saudi Arabia when you consider the amounts that they're spending on football at the moment. Yeah, I agree. It's a cheap sport to invest in and the return on investment in cycling is, is still... A big, even with with um, a modest investment, you can create a lot of uh, publicity, which is in, in a lot of other sports impossible. But the um, yeah, I've said it before, and uh, I have to repeat it: the the big game changer will be the TV rights in the future. But as it stands now, there's not a lot of movement there because everything is on a standstill. And as long as they they don't get all those TV rights in one big pot, nothing's gonna change if you ask me, except a bit the range of the transfers and the and the wages, of course, there's there's room to play with there, but the big the big picture is not going to change as it stands. Just just final footnote, chaps, talking about Saudi money and influx of Saudi money. One of the teams that well, we ha already has uh, some kind of connection with Saudi Arabia, Movistar, they have a connection with the Saudi Federation and there's been talk of maybe more of a commercial partnership going forward. Um, one, of the, one of their sort of sponsorship liaison management type executives posted on social media today he's on holiday and sort of it looked like strategically placed at the poolside um he'd taken a picture of the book that he was reading it was a book about the saudi prince uh, mohammed bin salman and the um, human rights record of saudi arabia um which i thought was interesting interesting, interesting say, opening say gambit for any kind of negotiations discussions but there we are yeah uh, uh, shall I just wrap up a, a few other bits of business before we get to the 
conversation about the World Championship road race. But uh, a couple of things from the UCI. We were asked towards the end of the tour, I think over the last weekend, whether there had been any um, tests for motors or other methods of propulsion in the bikes and the UCI issued a press release after the tour to say that tests were carried out to detect technological fraud at all 21 stages of the Tour de France a total of 997 tests carried out all of which were negative um can't say the same for Alex Bodan of AG2R who tested positive for Tramadol at the Giro d'Italia. He finished 73rd in the race. Tramadol has been banned in competition since 2019 and well his results have been annulled and he's effectively disqualified from the race. And this morning GCN um, wrote a story, a very interesting story about Biniam Gamay and three other Eritrean riders, Natniel Tesfatsion, Mahari Kudus and Emmanuel Gebreg Zabir, uh, saying that they had all been denied visas to enter the United Kingdom for the World Championships in Glasgow this weekend. Um, a couple of hours after that, Anta Marche, which is Biniam Gamay's team, of course, Um, posted a story on their website to say that Gamay was pulling out of the World Championships anyway as a result of the crash that basically, uh, well, he crashed at San Sebastian on Saturday and didn't finish the race. And Antomarche, yeah, said that he was pulling out of the world because of his injuries. But, uh, well, a slightly sort of... It released with slightly sort of suspicious haste after the GCN story about the visa. We don't yet know the status of the visa for the other three Eritrean riders, but clearly um, an issue for them waiting to see whether they can get into the United Kingdom for the race at the weekend. Anything else on that, chaps, that you know? Yeah. Clearly, UCI has to do something about those uh, visum issues. It's not the first time it's happening with riders from uh, African countries. Um, and I know for a fact that in the case of, of Germay, they've been busy on, on uh, with the, the, um, the visa story for weeks. Um, one of the guys um, trying to get visum for um, uh, Germay told me in confidence that they had to perform eye scans, fingerprints, face recognition, interviews, Brussels, Paris, uh, transfers. Um, <laughs> I think that's all way over the top i mean uci should really wake up they have um worlds in two years in africa okay the reverse would probably not be a big problem but um these guys are, are gonna come and come over and over again to europe and other parts of the world to compete elite sports world class athletes i mean it should stop it should simply stop i mean a guy like germay shouldn't be worried about his visum it should be okay you, you imagine having uh, Formula One pilots in the same situation with, with them traveling the, around the world. It's an, an, an unthinkable. I, mean, I think this has to stop because a guy like Germay is so important for the world image of cycling. He should have been here. He's a possible world champion in the Glasgow race course and he's not here. And okay, he's had a probably injury uh, stuff, but I don't think that's the main reason. And it's a shame. It's really a shame. And that's my personal opinion. Some part of it I can't prove, but I'm I'm quite sure because of my inside um, source information that that it looks like the visum thing is the main thing for him not being in Glasgow, and that's really such a shame. I can't <laughs> stress it enough. Yeah, so it's a pity because 
could have become world champion. The scepticism ometer kind of started flickering, didn't it? Because of the sequence of events, the GCN story this morning, a couple of hours later, Antomarche's story saying that Gamay wasn't going to ride anyway. But then that basically being tweeted by David Lepati on the UCI president within minutes. It just looked a little bit like a sort of jigsaw of excuses and uh, a, a slight cover-up for the embarrassment of the, the visa issue. I'm with you, Renard. I think if a nation bids to host a world-class sporting event, there should be, you know, a, a basically an open-door policy for all um, qualified and selected athletes. Uh, we have had this situation in world athletics. I think there have been problems when the world championships were in the USA last year or the year before for um you know it's not necessarily new but it is something that uh, if 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 sport is going to be truly global then there needs to be advanced negotiations between the 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 governing bodies and the the people that are bidding to host the events because it's embarrassing if nothing else um that a, a nation like great britain uh, wouldn't throw its doors open to the best athletes in the world regardless of where they're from Anyway, we'll talk about the road race in a moment, I, but I just wanted to uh, just sort of fill people in a bit on this World Championships being held all over Scotland, not just Glasgow. It actually kicks off tomorrow, Thursday, with the track and para track events in the velodrome, the Chris Hoy Velodrome in Glasgow. It runs until a week on Sunday when uh, one of the final medals to be awarded will be the women's road race gold medal and rainbow jersey in total around 200 rainbow jerseys up for grabs uh, very diverse uh, cycling events to watch being held all across scotland as much of a celebration of scotland as it is of cycling but there's there's bmx there's grand fondo events there's indoor cycling daniel not referring to the track that's track cycling but there's indoor cycling which is artistic cycling and cycle ball i mean have arsenal got a cycle ball team that's uh, that's the big question. There's mountain biking, of course, uh, the paracycling on the road and the track. Uh, of course, the road races always kind of uh, take most of the attention, but there's plenty more cycling to watch across Scotland between, well, tomorrow and August the 13th. And we'll talk about the men's road race, which is on Sunday in the next part. Shoot, uh, shoot at l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2, the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today. And with the eyes of the cycling world on Scotland, with the World Championships taking place there over the next week or so, it makes me cast my mind back almost a year to when Simon Gill and I were up in Scotland for the second half of our Tour de Cos ride. And the challenge was to ride to each of the 42 Scottish Football League grounds. And we had to plot our way from Gretna all the way up to Dingwall, the home of Ross County. And I designed all of the routes using the Hammerhead dashboard. It was really very simple. I just put in the addresses of each of the football grounds and let the Hammerhead dashboard do the rest. And it came up with some fantastic routes, kept us off all of the busy roads and well it made the whole couple of weeks of cycling a very pleasurable experience too and an easy one as well because we were able to navigate our way very simply by following the yellow line on the Karoo 2 which was on my handlebars and I mean it was well flawless really we didn't go wrong over the course of the two weeks because well, the yellow line always took us in the right direction. And even when we made the odd detour to go and check out something that was near our route, the Karoo 2 would get us back onto the route 
uh, with the minimum of fuss. There was none of that business where you have to turn around or retrace your steps. It would always make the easiest, simplest, most logical route to our ultimate destination each day. The one thing that I really enjoyed was the climber feature, and that really comes into its own when riding on unfamiliar roads, especially on a long climb when you're not too sure how far there is to go to the top. It can sometimes mess with your mind a bit. And so with the climber feature, you always know where you are in relation to the top because it tells you exactly how far there is to go and also what the gradient is on the way. And when riding on roads that you don't know, uh, that information really comes in handy. And I suppose the ultimate endorsement is that when we returned to Scotland for the second half of our tour, Simon had bought himself a Hammerhead Carew too. So impressed was he with its navigation and also the information that the climber feature was giving me. Now, if you want to buy a Hammerhead Carew 2 now, you can also get a free heart rate monitor with every purchase. Go to hammerhead.io, put the two items into your shopping cart, that's the heart rate monitor and the Carew 2, and use the promo code CYCLE at checkout and you'll get the heart rate monitor for free so that's hammerhead.io put the heart rate monitor and the Carew 2 in the basket and use the promo code cycle well we've already established that renard you're in glasgow already glasgow i think you know in edinburgh the road race of course starts from edinburgh um what is the atmosphere like renard at this well extravaganza this cycling extravaganza as lionel um, has just described this super world, which apparently, well, this is the UCI's ambition, we're going to have every four years now a super world like this one. What's the vibe like in Glasgow? Well, I just got here, of course. Um, it's my second time in, in Glasgow since I also covered the Euros in, in back in 2018, which gives me some info already about the race course and, and the atmosphere we can expect here. Um, it's, yeah, it's difficult to say because... Um, you're looking I, looking forlornly out the window of your travel <laughs> lodge for any signs of I saw, ambiance I saw at the, the moment, I can tell. Yeah, that's true. That. But I saw the build-up of the finish area and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go to the track where actually today already there's some behind closed doors actions in in um, in paracycling um so i'm i'm quite sure uh, when i landed in edinburgh there was a sign um referring to the to the worlds i mean it's it's yeah it's the uk it's anglo-saxon environment i'm quite sure the the worlds will live here and especially on the track at the chris hoy arena I, there's no doubt about that and i think logistically what uci and glasgow are pulling off is is um really complicated um, i spoke with one of the directors uh, responsible directors early this morning it's a belgian guy uh, peter van den abele he was partly responsible of getting those super worlds into glasgow and he mentioned the the logistic um yeah difficulties for for them to to stage these worlds with uh 13 of the 15 uci disciplines it's not easy for them and i think without a doubt you can call it the olympics of cycling and it's a first and there will be a second because the second contract for super worlds has already been given to uh, france haute savoie in four years that's a certainty with that rem slight remark it will be on the um the uh, traditional date it will be in the second part of september so uh, it was glasgow that that asked uh, when they did the the, the euros in uh, 18 to have the super worlds in the same time slot that's why we are here in the midst of scottish summer and uh, i remember in 2018 it, it, it hardly rained 
and I already, already now I've been here for like uh, not almost uh, almost a day, and I've already seen more rain than back then. So <laughs> I'm I'm a bit afraid that it'll be it'll be wet worlds, but at the other hand, I'm I'm quite sure it'll not be Harrogate revisited, um, and it's um, the course. I had a quick peek at, at a couple of sections on, and yeah, I think it, it's uh, it's going to be fascinating. And I'm quite sure that Glasgow, being a a very big sports city, will be ready for these worlds. Though the big the big scene is not set yet. Uh, you know how it goes when championships come along. Uh, the people have to build up. I mean, last night I visited a pub. There was nothing to be seen from any uh, world championship activity. But I'm quite sure that over the next few days that'll change completely. One thing that does occur to me, did occur to me during the Tour de France, chaps, just the, the slot, the time slot, the date for these Super Worlds, just in our kind of cloistered sort of parochial road cycling centric world, um, it has lost some of, well, some of the hype that would ordinarily be built around the World Championship um, is not really in evidence because we're also, you know, the cycling world road cycling world is so preoccupied with the tour de france um in july and also you know we come out of the tour de france almost tired and frankly wanting to rest and and consequently these are almost sort of slapping us in the face a little bit before we're ready before we've sort of um regrouped and are ready for another big occasion but as as i said that's our viewpoint um as um road cycling commentators but i mean historically Daniel, the... historically the the world championship road races were held in august towards the end of august admittedly sort of yeah uh, would normally be three weeks after the tour de france maybe four weeks after the tour de france that was until uh, 1995 when the uci moved the vuelta from its spring um, slot on the calendar lots of new cycling fans may be unaware that the vuelta used to be the first of the season's grand tours overlapping uh, almost with the spring classics and running into May. Uh, but they moved the Vuelta to uh, sort of, well, initially a September slot, wasn't it? It's kind of shifted around a little bit. And as a result of that, the worlds were after the Vuelta. And it was a pretty unpopular move back then, I seem to remember, because it felt like really at the very end of a tired season. Um, the World Championships, there was this kind of image, this sort of halcyon era where the riders had a kind of a couple of weeks doing the lucrative criterium series after the Tour de France and then would all turn up at the Worlds. You know, you'd see all of the best Tour de France riders and you genuinely would see a kind of a battle between the best Grand Tour racers and the best classics riders. And the World Championships has kind of changed its character as a result of that shift to late in the season. Moving it back on really a one-off basis is slightly jarring. I was all in favour of kind of trying to reignite those, uh, you know, those halcyon days that, that I barely remember, uh, thinking that it would mean that we'd have a sort of Tour de France style showdown. But it was odd and quite jarring to hear today Pogacar during his Tour de France press conferences talking about how the World Championships are in a, a difficult moment in the season because, again, for the riders, probably not all that ideal these days, the way they prepare for a race like the Tour de France to kind of have their form lingering on for another couple of weeks. 
uh, you know, the way they train, the way they race has changed so much since the since the 80s and 90s, the era that I'm sort of harking back to, that, that it will be quite interesting. And of course, the circuit itself, the course itself, uh, is not really one for, I would suspect, for a kind of Grand Tour type of rider to, um, you know, really relish. It's almost like a criterium in the centre of Glasgow. Well, that, yeah. That, that's the big question, isn't it? And that was the question that sort of uh, Renat and I were wrestling with or even before we started recording today. What is this course, chaps? I mean, just in terms of the vital statistics, it's around 3,500 metres of climbing, uh, 270 kilometres. On paper, if you take purely those two vital stats, then it might look a little bit like an Amstel Gold. It looks like Amstel Gold in also in the sense that there are a lot of corners. There are even more corners and probably narrower roads in parts um, than there are even at Amstel Gold. I mean, on Twitter, I called it the Tenant Super um, to Amstel Gold um, in honour of the local brew. But is it going to, is it going to, turn out to be as well selective as Amstel Gold for example this year we saw Tadej Pogacar ride away on his own to win Amstel Gold um, Amstel Gold is always pretty selective or it has been certainly the last few years since they've um, changed the course tweaked the course slightly but Renard I know well on your recon this morning you you noted you observed to me how short the climbs are and if the race is interpreted in a certain way by certain teams, we could even see a, a sprinter winning. We could see, for example, your countryman Jasper Philipson um, winning. So, I mean, what, what's your what's your verdict on this course? Yeah, Philipson is surely a possibility on on this course, but I think um, the main thing will be how the the peloton, the bunch, will use the race course because um, on paper. Um, it doesn't look that tough, but if they use the rain course as it can be used, then it can be like like a, yeah, a really tough race. And it, I'm quite sure they will use the race course because recently we've we've seen in all the, ra- the races that riders tend to to go early. I mean, if Evenepoel went last year at minus 75, I expect him to go at minus 80 this year. Uh, that's the way he won. Um, Classica San Sebastian again with a long, uh, long range move, and and I think we will see stuff like that. Except compared to last year, if even the pool goes at minus 80, Pogacar might respond, and even Van der Poel might respond right away, which will make it more interesting, and then we'll end for a real classic one. And I think it'll it'll be um, the way they interpret the race course that will decide the outcome. But I don't rule out that we go to to a sprint with a small bunch. Uh, how big that bunch is depends to be seen and um, will depend from the way they use the course. I mean, if they don't ride 100% on the 10 conclusive laps, then it's possible that you have a sprint with 20, 30, 30 guys easily. But if they use the race course to its full advantage, then it's going to be difficult and then I'd rather predict like an outcome with a small group like in the Euros 2018 when a small group uh, went into the finale and <laughs> by coincidence through three cyclocross or three riders with the cyclocross past uh, or current uh, one uh, Trenton used to be uh, an Italian junior cyclocross champion and then we had of course um, Van der Poel and Van Aert on the other 
places on the podium so <laughs> it, it it has been compared with the cyclocross race but I think that's a bit too short through the corner because cyclocross corners are on a different surface um, here you speak about a 14k race course uh, it's it's a road race uh, let there be no doubt about that but I'm quite sure that um, yeah it's going to be fascinating worlds because the outcome is so unpredictable very unpredictable it is it is a race course but it's a city center race course certainly that once they reach glasgow and i mean you'll remember renart from 2018 the european championships and i know the depth of field is not the same at the european championships but that was a that was an aggressive race it broke up a lot the winner was matteo trentin of italy and he was away with among others matthew van der poel and wout van Aert, who took silver and bronze in that race and i mean if you just compare just looking on on the sort of the uh, you know the street map view the Glasgow section of this year's World Championship course is tighter. There are more corners. It's more of a city street circuit than the, even the European Championship course was, which kind of stretched its legs a little bit. It went down to, um, yeah, well, it sort of went around the Kelvin Grove Park area, uh, which the World Championships goes to as well. But it, it stretched across the city a bit more, whereas this is much more self-contained. Lots and lots of corners. It's going to be about positioning and acceleration and and closing gaps and, you know, splits happening and who's going to sort of close things up again. But I would also say don't underestimate the bit from Edinburgh to Glasgow in the first place because it's 110 kilometres there or thereabouts. I'm familiar with some of the roads, having ridden them in reverse during the Tour de Cosse last year. Uh, it goes across the Queensfree crossing. It goes almost to Dunfermline Athletic, Daniel, but not quite. It goes almost to Alloa Athletic, but not quite. It does go past Stenhouse Muir and Falkirk. And then, of course, there's the Crow Road, which is, is the famous climb that every cyclist in the Glasgow area will know very well and KOM held by Michael Storer I believe still is that right okay well mm. um and and that's kind of the last of the climbing and as you say not really significant enough climbing but if the if the weather's bad if it's wet if people are nervous about the circuit and want to break things up a bit if the wind blows because it is quite exposed as well we could see the race really on from you know well before um, what 150 kilometers to go mark it could as you say Renard there are so many factors um, and there are so many things that they'll they'll want to sort of take into account and and try to minimize um, the, the the danger and the jeopardy I guess of the city center aspect of the of the course that it could be a fascinating race it's, it really is one of those ones to watch from kilometer zero I think on Sunday if possible how how wide are a lot of these corners on the city center circuit because that of course is, is key as well if they're narrow then you will get you'll get concertinaing on every one of these corners and you know i've seen daniele benati for example the italian um, national coach he's talked about a corner every 25 seconds now if people are having to sprint out of every one of those corners then it's going to become an absolutely brutal race um if if on the other hand they're able to sort of sweep around a lot of them without touching the brakes then it's different yeah, I, I agree on that. And I think uh, one, the Belgian assistant coach, um, Serge Pauls, has said the same, like, like Ben Arthi. Um, one thing seems a certainty for me, whatever the size is of the group, uh, if, if there's not a solo rider on his uh, way to, to victory, and yeah, 
then I'm only thinking about one person really. But <laughs> I I rather suspect a small a small group going into that final round. And I think yeah, for for sure we're gonna have an acceleration on on Montrose Street. I mean it's only 200 meters, but it's um, yeah it's speaking to about 10 percent. It's uh, close to 8% uh, average. Okay, I know 200 meters, that's not a lot. And with a world elite field, it's not going to be easy to make a difference there. But coming so deep into the race, the final stretch up Montrose Street, that might be the ultimate trampoline towards the rainbow jersey. And that looks to me a certainty. If it's for a solo rider or even from a, a group, there will be a move on that climb. And I think Montrose Street will be the place to be during those those worlds for sure. So um, in that sense, um, the cornering and the way they, they take the corners, it, it will be very important because it will make for a Belgian Kermis feeling. Like af after every uh, corner, you have to like uh, speed up again and, and that'll wear the bodies out and they'll be completely, yeah, I'm quite sure. If we add some rain, then, then it'll be even be more Belgian. So it's, it's fascinating all the way and um, I don't share your sentiment of, of um, the worlds are like a bit lost in, in the middle of the season because I haven't done the Tour de France on site. So <laughs> I've been in Brussels in the studio, comfortable, and I'm not worn out after the Tour de France like I used to be. So for me, the Tour was preparation for this these worlds. And it's kind of, um, I think a lot of riders are, are in the same mood. And Van der Poel, I think he rode the Tour with just one thing in his mind not winning stage wins okay if the odd, the odd stage win would have come he would have been happy but he's been a lead out fantastically for Jasper Philipsen as the more i think about it the more i see van der poel as one of the absolute main favorites for this kind of race course yeah just on strava daniel montrose street declan b who holds the current strava king of the mountains record probably going to lose that on Sunday isn't he 36 kilometer an hour well, average 90, so. 19 seconds uh, <laughs> yeah but there we are sorry about that Declan the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science a big thank you to science in sport for supporting the cycling podcast they're the world leaders in endurance nutrition and they have recently added a new protein bar to their extensive range of well drinks and gels and bars they've got everything you need for before during and after your ride and these protein bars are tasty but they're low sugar and high protein coated in chocolate so they're tasty and there's a choice of white chocolate fudge milk chocolate peanut butter dark chocolate raspberry and cookies and cream i'm quite looking forward to having a taste of these myself over the next couple of weeks or so when i'm out riding they're conveniently split into two 32 gram bars so you can eat them as and when you want on the go and each pack contains 20 grams of protein for muscle growth and repair Scientist bought products are all developed for elite athletes, but they're available to all of us. So go to scienceinsport.com to check out the full range. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Uh, Renat, I think I think it was this time last year in anticipation of the World Championships in Australia, we had you on and we asked you to sort of titillate us with the latest gossip um, from the Belgian camp. I remember the sort of backdrop to last year's Worlds was this Van Aert versus Avonapool, whether it was a kind of Cold War, a Civil War, and well, it, it didn't really erupt in the dramatic fashion that people maybe expected voyeuristically wanted it to erupt because Remco Avonapool 
went on to win the rainbow jersey and it was all very successful and it was all smiles and confetti for the Belgians. Not much has been said. Um, we've sort of forgotten about that, that supposed internal rivalry in the Belgian camp. Um, what, politically speaking, how are things currently in the Belgian camp? I think they all know their place uh, within the team and they need each other to become world champion and that's that's an important one. Um, in, an, in an ideal scenario, um, <laughs> let's try it, <laughs> an ideal scenario, uh, even a pull attacks first and then um, he makes yeah, a move and a, a group of riders joins him and then yeah, eventually that group gets uh, decimated again and then another group survives and comes from what's left of the peloton towards that group and then in that group will be Van Aert so then once Evenepoel is being catched it's Van Aert's chance and then it's Van Aert's race but if that group doesn't make it then there's scenario three like a bigger bunch comes back like a bigger peloton and then comes Jasper Philipsen around the corner I think that is the uh, dream scenario Belgians have have written out but I'm quite sure that the dream scenario is um, very unlikely to come out and uh, if for instance Van Aert is, is earlier in a breakaway than, than Evenepoel yeah what they're gonna do because there's no communication I mean I'm quite sure that the the, the, the Belgian bonds coach uh, national coach Sven van Turenhout former cyclocross rider uh, by coincidence will um, for sure make very good um, agreements because if they don't do that then they will jeopardize the future worlds and the next years we will have um, yeah, other chances for especially for Remco Evenepoel so I would rather think that he okay he's, he's, he wants to win it for himself but I'm quite sure that if he's able to to be in a kind of an element in, in a Wout van Aert world title that'll help him in the future to become once again world champion and I'm somehow quite sure that his main goal at these worlds for Remco Evenepoel is not the road but is the time trial quite sure so it's all about the time trial for Remco. If he gets another rainbow jersey on the road, of course he will be happy with it. And the funny thing is that this year it's reverse. It's first the road race and then the, the time trial, which is also unusual. But um, yeah, that's complicating things. That's true because it would have been easier to have Remco first in the rainbow jersey as a time trialist and then being in, in, in the selection. The, I'm, yeah, there's been a lot of talk about that in Belgium and, and that's topic number one with uh, with three leaders. But in the past, it's it's always been like that. And and in the end, yeah. usually they come I mean, out of it. Usually. Because if I, if I was looking at this through a sort of Italian 1990s world championship lens, I would also look at the composition of the team and say, okay, um, three Jumbo Vismas, two Sudar Quick Steps, one Alpatin. And, you know, you, you, you might ask questions about how much help Philipson is going to get or how much commitment Philipson is going to get from those other guys. But, you know, I have this is a sort of generation where there's less, there seems to be less sort of skullduggery, skullduggery of the really awful kind, but also just this the sort of more trivial skullduggery of, of trade teammates conspiring against national teammates um, we haven't had too much of that in the last few years of course the Belgian uh, the Belgian team in Leuven and that was the origin of this Van Aert 
Avonapool beef. Um, that was a, a rare exception. But we haven't had too many examples of that in many national teams over the last few years. It, recriminations going on for months after the World Championship. Yeah, yeah I, I follow you. But if you do one like that in Belgium these days, then you're out for, for the, of the selection for the next years. The Belgian national coach, mm. Van Toernoot, has specifically stated that if you perform or you act like that, then you're out for... You're you'll be yeah you're postponed or whatever you you call it you're erased from the Belgian selection huh? yeah kicked out of it so so I think and I don't think um, that the riders the generation you're talking about and from from now on they don't want to have that that kind of talk after a race they all know they they need each other and I still believe um, it can be naive but I I still believe that they find it an honor to wear the national jersey and i think it's even bigger than than it used to be kind of it looks to me like that yeah and there are also financial arrangements that are made aren't there i think that's an open secret as well in most of the big nations that you know whether it's a remco and i think this was even documented that he had promised a certain figure um to his teammates last year if he was to win the world championship which he did um Chaps, we we should indulge the listeners maybe with some predictions in a minute, as loath as we usually are to speculate. Um, maybe a, a sort of favourite who you think is going to win and maybe an, an outsider who you think could possibly win. Um, shall I go first? Shall I go first? Oh, well, I think... For the winner, I'm going to say we're going to see a Pogmane in Scotland at the weekend. Um, Tade Pogacar, I think he's going to be rested. And I think that the nature of the course might well suit him with a lot of explosive efforts, particularly out of the corners. Um, I, I do have some doubts about his team because I think with all those corners, it's going to be really important to occupy you well up. A position pretty near the front of the peloton so that you're not getting concertinaed, you're not having to sprint too much out of every corner. Um, although he's a really good bike handler and can look after himself, he, the Slovenian team is not the strongest. So that's my doubt. Um, outside, I think Olaf Koy, a couple of people have mentioned. Um, he is, he's obviously not the Netherlands' first card, but if it does, as Renard suggests, it might come down to some kind of bunch sprint and he's definitely got a chance even against the likes of Philipson so he'd be my outsider um just third footnote I would say the French team I think are going to play a key role because Thomas Vauclair in his stint as the French national selector has has shown that he is not someone who's ever going to be passive and he's always going to try and impose his kind of vision on the race and I think the French team is a key reason why we're not going to see a sort of defensive controlled race Renard, Lionel? i got to let Lionel go in first. Um, I'm, well, I'm curious I'm to hear what... Lionel wants you to go first. I think just because of the course and uh, what Renard said about Matthew van der Poel and the way he rode the Tour de France, I think it makes perfect sense. I mean, everything uh, uh, required on a course like this suits van der Poel. Positioning, bike handling, cornering, explosivity, sprint. He can do that. He can, he can get himself in moves. He's in a less complicated team. In in a lot of ways, the Netherlands. I know you've mentioned Olaf Koy, but he's he's a little bit uh, sort of second division, even in the in the sprint standing. I'd say, and I would have said Michael Matthews as an outsider as well. You know, a tough, durable rider likes long, hard races, has a finish, uh, gets into splits and moves, but a little bit uncertain. Uh, his season hasn't exactly, um, you know, 
well, I mean, he finished the Giro, didn't he? But, uh, you know, a fair while since he's had a, a, a real block of racing and didn't finish in San Sebastian on Saturday. Uh, so a uh, little bit unsure how he is going. But the, he's the sort of rider. I think we, we won't see too many surprises. I think it will be just because of the, 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 the difficulty of the of the course, the selective nature of, of the course in, in terms of, I suppose, uh, you know, the cream will rise to the top. Um, you know, it won't be a kind of conventional bunch sprint finish. Even if it finishes in a sprint finish, I don't see it being a sort of, you know, a, a Zolder World Championships from, you know, 20 odd years ago. So I'll say Vanderpool is, I think, the, the favourite. Yeah, of course. And, and um, I couldn't agree more. A couple of other names I'd like to mention are Mats Pedersen. I mean, he's done a terrific Tour de France and the way he was riding there around France, um, yeah, he sure has the pedigree and the form and the shape to uh, to repeat his former UK world title. So uh, I think Pedersen has also a strong team to his uh, uh, advantage. So um, that's also a team I'm really looking forward to, to, to see the way they perform because they could help Belgium, of course, in, in the race to, towards the ideal scenario. Not that I only think about Belgian scenarios, but uh, another team I'm really interested in is, is, um, is the United States. I mean, um, there's uh, Quinn Simmons. Okay. He crashed out literally out of the Tour de France, but um, I'm kind of sure that he'll be okay somehow. And there's always the surprise rider. And then we have to look to the uh, unexpected um, part of the peloton. Uh, there's always somehow a rider that surprises during Worlds. And it, it's difficult to say. I, I would have said before Germay, but okay, but Germay won't be there. Um, it's difficult to say. I, I guess that uh, Great Britain needs something to show so I, I yeah you guys being Brits you have to tell me which Brit we have to look forward to I mean it's after all it's it's in your country <laughs> I think Fred Wright would probably be the smart yeah. choice I think he will be the he's the leader main protected yeah. rider yeah yeah and what about his chances on on a, on a course like this is he uh, realistically one of the favorites I mean there's been so much talk about Fred Wright and and, and I think even in Belgium he's kind of a cult figure um not to mention the uh the the <laughs> the playing with the words right set threat and blah 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 but <laughs> he's he's a, he's a, a rider that appeals to uh, imagination will he be too sexy for that rainbow shirt i don't know i don't know um his problem fred wright's issue i would say and he would probably agree has been decision making at times he's a guy who almost has too wide a panoply of abilities and he doesn't know which ability to use or which weapon to use when and having said that, he'll probably, Fred Wright will probably win a really, really big race in the manner and at the time when we least expect it. Because there, there have been a lot of occasions in the last 12 months where, you know, you've looked at a course or you've looked at a set of circumstances and thought they're perfect for Fred Wright and it hasn't quite worked out for him. Um, he's definitely uh, over uh, 270 kilometers, that kind of course. I think he is definitely in the conversation, as they say. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the Tour of Flanders result, you look at the top eight there. Fred Wright was eighth. Obviously, Pogacar, Van der Poel, Pedersen, Van Aert, Paulus, Kung, Askreen, Wright. I mean, if that was the top eight for the World Championships on Sunday, you wouldn't be all that surprised, I would say. 
I mean, you would be surprised, obviously, because it would be an absolute freak that the top eight in the World Championships was exactly the same as the top eight in the Tour of Flanders. I mean, statistically, yeah, absolutely yeah, no chance of it happening. Of course, Lionel, we all know that uh, the real World Championships in one-day racing is the Tour of Flanders. It happens each year, the first Sunday in April, in Belgium, in Flanders. <laughs> yeah. Well, chaps, I hinted that I'm still trying to get over my post-Tour de France hangover. Not literally a hangover. Um, a couple of shandies for me on last Sunday um, of Tour de France. Quickly metabolized. I'm well over that now. But the, the, the Tour still very much looms large. Lionel, we haven't been together since the Tour de France. Of course, you did a sterling job throughout the month of July um, with our sort of revolving cast of characters. Um, Lionel, you're hot takes from the tour any hot takes from the tour and did you agree with my four wine glasses out five ranking rating for the tour de france yeah i did really i think on this the fight the the penultimate sunday before um vingegaard really well totally dominated the time trial and then pogachar's collapse i think it was on course for a five out of five that was the question i wanted to ask you what what kind of denied it the the final wine glass because i i do still think that the you know, those two stages that followed the Col de la Lose, on paper, looked at those as being, these could be real long kind of dog day afternoons a little bit in the final week of the tour. Not a lot of excitement and actually turned out to be two almost classic type stages, didn't they? And it, it wasn't like the, it wasn't like the, you know, the, 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 the fire completely went out after Vingegaard had it wrapped up. But I suppose we always live the Tour de France in retrospect, don't we? Uh, Pogacar's collapse, I suppose, you know, although we were surprised at the time, you know, Vingegaard had dropped hints about the Tour being a race of minutes rather than seconds, and he was very confident of that. And obviously the way he attacked the time trial, you know, he left absolutely no margin for, you know... <laughs> anything going wrong really there did he? he he put the tour more or less out of reach um at that point but what was it that denied it the fifth wine glass daniel i, I mean as i always say this um wine glass ranking system is highly subjective and whimsical and it's based on a lot of facts it's a bit like the recipe of coca-cola i'll never reveal the full recipe uh, or the full sort of modus operandi um it takes into account the route and also um you know, even things as as incidental as, you know, regions and landscapes and things like that. However, um, generally it's based on was it a good race to watch and the quality of the spectacle. And I think the, the suspense was definitely punctured. Well, Jonas Vingard took a spear to the suspense on that last Tuesday, didn't he, in the time trial. So um, that was something it really lacked. I mean, what was great about it, the, the Grand Depart was fantastic and the Basque Country was everything that we hoped it was going to be. The fans, again, the courses were beautiful. I'd spent a couple of weeks in the Basque Country before the tour and sort of absorbed or tried to absorb a lot of the ambiance and some of the you know Basque history culture and so forth. So I really loved the first three days and the, the racing itself with the Grand sorry the general classification riders to the four immediately was an absolute crackerjack start then the Pyrenees both the La Hans and the quarter race stages were fantastic I think Pogacar attacking Vingegaard was probably 
still, in spite of how the race panned out, it was it was probably the most exciting and iconic moment of the Tour de France um, and sort of surprising moment of the Tour de France as well. Maybe therein is a bit of pro Pogacar bias on my part, but I just I just felt that even the you know at that moment I wasn't in the press room or, or I was actually sort of standing by the side of the road watching uh, a, a big screen but I just felt the whole watching public of the Tour de France and the whole race sort of erupted spontaneously at that moment there was um, well there was genuine shock at the sort of reversal that we were witnessing um, I thought the medium mountain stages were terrific, without exception. The Isoire stage was fantastic. The Belleville Beaujolais stage was fantastic. I mean, Renard will definitely be able to speak to this because, uh, Renard, you were commentating and I guess you were doing the whole stages. So you'll be able to talk about how exciting the first two hours of those stages were, how crazy they were. Um, even, you know, in the last week, the st- stages that look like old school traditional stages to Bourg-en-Bresse and uh, Poligny they were fantastic as well slight disappointments the Puy de Dôme had mixed feelings because it it was kind of schizophrenic particularly being in the car that day driving up the first part of the climb um, one of the best atmospheres I'd seen at the Tour de France one of the most raucous excited exciting atmospheres I'd seen and then personally I found the TV pictures and the TV production that day of the final kilometers of the climb a little bit surreal and a little bit anticlimactic without any spectators and I didn't love that the Grand Colombier was a bit of a disappointment um as well so the and and then obviously the fact that we knew the outcome several days before Paris um and the the collective sort of the general sense of deflation uh Pogacar not being able to to go toe-to-toe with Vingegaard until the to the Champs-Elysees so they were that's the sort of general kind of textured picture um that i came away with but renard what about you um generally speaking um how how classic was this vintage yeah, i was um fascinated by, by the tour de france uh, because of the um the struggle with the seconds going on that long and um as i was commentating with uh, the, the team director of greg lamont besides me uh, jose de Cowers, um so the, the famous uh, the legendary eight second tour uh, it looked for a long time that we were yeah kind of revisiting that kind of tour de france but in the end it wasn't so i'm always measuring a tour de france to that legendary in 89 uh, edition with uh, uh yeah the, the maillot jaune being uh, switched from shoulder from fignon to le monde and back and and eventually another one in, in the final time trial so in the end, I was a bit disappointed that the, the seconds didn't last till the Champs-Élysées because that would have made for uh, one of the best Tour de France's ever. And now, yeah, if you're in in not on site, you probably see it differently than, than being on site because then you miss like what you described there so nicely, like the, the public and the, the uh, ambience and the, the atmosphere on site. I mean, those are things that you, you tend to... Um, you live that differently and in a studio far away from the action though you have to commentate the whole race but um from the sporting point of view i was i was yeah um, i was um blown away by the time trialing skills of of jonas fingergaard because that time trial for sure must have been one of the best time trials ever in in cycling history uh from athletic point of view with the the values he was pushing there 
uh, from um, the preparation they put into that time trial uh, with the way he was handling his time trial bike, uh, putting seven seconds on Wout van Aert in a time trial. Okay, a Grand Tour time trial is different than World Championships coming up. Van Aert is aiming at those World Championships specifically, but he put seven seconds per kilometer into Wout van Aert's uh, bag, which is astonishing. Uh, Pogacar lost three seconds a per kilometer that day. Uh, I mean, those were figures that you couldn't imagine before. And so Vingegaard was really outstanding and it only um, opens up the question how the next Tour de France will look like if he stays like this, is even if Pogacar is 100% with a full option preparation and not having to come back from, from his uh, Liège uh, injury. So it'll be interesting to see if he can cope with that in the future. Yeah, th this was one of the other. So I noted down three or four things for you guys that uh, big talking points that I came away with, and one of them was the danger. And I'm not certain about this, but the danger of UAE Pogacar, but maybe more importantly, the fans and the public and us around Pogacar creating a narrative and almost creating excuses for Pogacar not beating Vingegaard and we have this we still have been left with this idea from 2021 and everything also that he's won since then of Pogacar being the promised one the anointed one and he, at the Tour de France last year or when he didn't win the Tour de France last year I think over the over subsequent months we built this narrative and UAE contributed to it and Pogacar contributed it of a, a few factors having having or being able to explain why he hadn't won one being the heat on the stage the Granon stage the, his feeding strategy that day and also the team which we could all see the team wasn't as strong as Jumbo Visma but the the, the subtext to all of that was Pogacar is still the guy who should be winning the Tour de France he's he's the guy who pound for pound is better and I kind of feel as though there's a danger of that happening again that people are coming away and mainly the main focus this time is the wrist injury and the sort of truncated preparation which you know, no one would deny that it was sub-ideal um but you mean again you mean Pogacar lost it rather than Vingegaard won it I think we got a little bit yes. of criticism for for that being perhaps the kind of the the slant of our coverage but I think that's because you you live this kind of fortnight of the race being you know so finely balanced and I think as kind of detached observers and even as kind of um you know the the fans watching at home I think we're actually we've got to kind of admit that we're more a fan of closeness than we are of brilliance and that's that's kind of the that's kind of the 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 my main takeaway from the Tour de France because I think there was a kind of a there was a sense of dissatisfaction once Vingegaard had put it to bed and, and won that's when the kind of the you know the doping questions such as it was kind of comes out that's when the sort of the skepticism how can this guy be so much better than Pogacar also so much better than an art in the time trial and then but then you know when we we've done this multiple years before you look at time trial results and really you know Vingegaard's performance would you have said oh well he's beaten the likes of Peo Bilbao by whatever it was two minutes 50 or whatever you know nothing kind of untoward or unusual about that kind of result it's just this kind of as you said um, you know he popped the balloon didn't he and I think suffered the, the the backlash for that really and I think this is what really plays into tour history and um, 
you know, Francois and I were talking a little bit about the, the battle between Onkatil and Poulador on Le Puy de Dom because, of course, the race went back to it for the first time in 35 years and it's where they had this tremendous battle and it was a battle that defined the, the uh, a large part of the 1960s and France was kind of divided between um, you know, a, a great number of Poulidor fans who frankly were Poulidor fans because he never wore the yellow jersey and he never won the tour. You know, they supported the underdog. They supported the guy that didn't clinically, you know, win. And Onkatir was kind of the cooler, colder figure who... Uh, even when he was up against it, would pull out a time trial result that would win the Tour de France. And I think there are slight parallels there that we uh, we, we were so invested in the, the closeness, so invested in the drama, so invested in the clash of personalities uh, that I think it's then a little bit unfortunate that then once it was decided in Vingegaard's uh, favour on the road, athletically, you know, he was the best rider in the Tour de France. You know, the result says it, the time trial says it, the way he climbed says it. Um, yes, you know, Pogacar landed a few blows, had him on the ropes a bit, and that's what made the, the opening kind of couple of weeks um, so good. Uh, I think it's unfortunate then that then the winner has to kind of wear all of that disappointment. And the Tour de France is not a popularity contest, but that does that, but that doesn't mean that popularity isn't one of the factors that we we tune in for. You know, it's one of the things that, you know, even as detached as we're supposed to be, it's impossible not to have a kind of a feeling for 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 riders and their feats. And there's a warmth to Pogacar that you don't necessarily quite get from Vingegaard. You know, Vingegaard is the kind of the 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 pro isn't he he's getting the job done and he got the job done brilliantly but i do understand why that leaves you know people feeling a, a little bit bereft that that we didn't have the kind of the, the ultimate showdown in the final week well this this idea of the tour being a popularity contest was another thing that i just wanted to mention and that this was a, a kind of dimension that the conversations around the tour they sort of took on in the last week when there was no suspense when it was clear that Vingegaard was going to win people started well almost giving sort of character assessments of the respective riders and it is curious how we do this with the tour winner in cycling you know I've always felt that the tour winner in cycling he's almost he almost becomes the de facto pontiff the pope of, of cycling and why do we need this figure this talisman in professional cycling well I've always felt that cycling is this sport that suffers from a bit of an inferiority complex vis-a-vis other more popular sports we also do have we have one event whereas tennis has four grand slams golf has four majors we have one event that stands way above all of the others so it becomes natural that the winner of this event becomes that as I say sort of elevated to that status of pontiff and he's the person who has to go out into the world and represent our sport and almost convey to the rest of the world how wonderful our sport is so we we project an awful lot we project an awful lot of kind of responsibility on that person and you know what we want that person what we want that rider to look like and I think the world has sort of decided, the cycling audience has decided that Pogacar is the best ambassador for this sport. Um, for, you know, quite legitimate reasons for how exciting he is, how he acts off the bike. And, and you know, he's also flourishing as a personality. Um, and he's someone that you feel can wear that status on his shoulders in a way that Vingegaard can't. But it's it's interesting how that became a big topic in the in the last week and then the whole doping question doping suspicions they're a they're a sort of a a tangent that's linked to all of that as well and just finally chaps and final 
thing that I came away with just in terms of you know how I'll remember this Tour de France um it was Tour de France of farewells as we move towards the, the farewell point of the podcast um the three sort of big farewells Pino um Cavendish maybe maybe and um Sagan and um, one being very emotional Pino um I mean I, I won't forget that day on the Mark Stein because of the sort of scenes we saw this uh, extraordinary sort of movement that's been created around Thibaut Pino some of it is a little bit tongue-in-cheek and we started the Tour de France in the Basque Country and I did a feature for ITV about Landismo and that is very much sort of tank tongue-in-cheek and the Pino phenomenon has become a bit tongue-in-cheek as well and I think even on his part he knows that it's a bit tongue-in-cheek and he's he's even commented on this and said he would like to be as successful as he is popular and there was there was a sense of that and it's kind of strange when you think this is a guy who only four years ago um, seemed to be poised to win the Tour de France and it's almost got to the point four years later where people were kind of celebrating the fact that um, he'd fallen well short of that. I mean, that's only a, a small part of the puzzle as far as um, Pino is concerned. Um, you know, we've talked before about how authentic he is and how people identify with various things. The, co- the time when he arrived in French cycling, they'd just been the sort of um, the, the whipping boy of world cycling for many years and you had this notion of cyclisme de vitesse them being cleaner than other nations and and he was the sort of poster boy for them being competitive again so there's a big part of that but that was a special day and i also got a lift down the march time with his brother and his mum um which also made it memorable for me because I tried, this was the second time in two months I tried to persuade his mum that he should do another year again with my tongue very much firmly in my cheek um, and she was quite adamant that that wasn't going to happen. I was also standing by his dad watching the, the, the watching well, him being caught and sort of overtaken on the march line and, you know, his dad was um, was very emotional as well. So that was that was quite special the Cavendish question um you know I mentioned this documentary that I would recommend to people um on Netflix it's coming out today I think it's called Never Enough um I went to a screening last week and Mark was there and a lot of people who know him very well his manager Rolf Aldag who is his sort of historical director sportive I mean I, I can I can tell you that at the moment I don't think a decision has been made. Um, maybe it has in Cavendish's head, but in ter- certainly no decision that his entourage um, are aware of, is aware of, has been made about next year. But, but I think the sort of prevailing wind suggests that he probably, well, there's a good chance he might come back um, for us on next year and have another go. So that was, you know, just watching Cavendish bow out the Tour de France, or we thought at the time in the back of an ambulance, that was obviously a very poignant moment. And then Sagan's leaving the Tour de France, which wasn't poignant because he was almost invisible for the for the three weeks of the Tour de France. And again, you know, I worked on a feature for ITV during the tour, which which um, involved sort of going back over his career and just reminding myself, refreshing my memory about everything that he'd achieved and um it is it is worth doing that just to remind yourself of the the very deep imprint on he had on a whole generation of particularly tours de france particularly those julys um the amount he, he achieved and how he was really at a time when the other big story at the tour was sky and sky were quite unpopular with a lot of people sagan was kind of unified everyone he was sort of universally popular for a long time um, and he was the other big 
sort of showstopper in every one of those tours for many years. Yeah, the seven green jerseys and not the way he won some of them because often he would go in those mountain breaks and snaffle up intermediate mm. sprint points when he probably didn't need to, but he was he was really present and engaged in the race. Uh, thinking of those three farewells, I was, I was just thinking of sort of, you know, bowing out on stage in the theatre and, you know, Thibaut Pinot still there bowing as the... Th- the auditorium empties out and the theatre caretaker switches off the lights and locks the doors. Uh, Peter Sagan just didn't turn up for the final act, did he? Um, and Mark Cavendish bows out on the stage while Alexander Vinokurov is printing up posters for a comeback tour, it feels like, doesn't it? Um, but we will wait and see on that. And, chaps, I think that concludes the episode. Renat, I'm going to wish you a very enjoyable Pogmanay World Championship are you, are you yeah Pogmanay possibly are you there for the duration Renat are you there for two weeks or just this week no no the, the whole lot the whole lot till um, okay. till the final end yeah will, will you get to see okay. cycle ball or the artistic cycling or any of those other events I'm not sure yet because from uh, from those uh, 13 upcoming days I kind of have 11 commentary days so I'm not sure if I'll find the time because there's a lot of races I have to cover. But if I, it's in the hall, um, yeah, it's besides the track, I believe. So uh, if I have the chance, I will have a look for sure. Well, Renard, enjoy the vibe, enjoy the cycle ball, enjoy the road racing, enjoy the, the cuisine, uh, enjoy everything about what my Scottish father refers to as God's country. Um, Lionel, we'll be back after the World Championship road race with Arrivé, won't we? We will on Sunday evening when we recap the action and uh, well, break down how the winner won it. See you then. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Renard. Thanks, Renard. Bye. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burns.